0: Minor Prophets are life-challenging. Okay, They're life-challenging. They're graphic. That's why we're calling this series Postcards from the Edge. Again, let me quote Jason Bobo, my friend. The museum of the Minor Prophets is action-packed, thrill-a-minute, gory, painful, drama-filled, Christ-laden group of books that I can't get enough of. Okay, So you're going to feel that as you move through... Yet another part of the museum, another minor prophet. Finally, when the going gets tough, and it may well get tough, we're looking at the minor prophets, I want you to remember that all of the Bible, all of the scripture, are God's words to us. Okay, God's words to us are entire scriptures. Even and especially the Old Testament. In fact, I had a, a professor in graduate school that used to say it this way. The New Testament, you know the books from Matthew to Revelation, those books are a footnote to the Old Testament. Okay? The New Testament is a footnote to the, Old te- to the Old Testament. And what he means is you're never going to really fully understand the depth and the breadth of who Jesus is and what he's done until you understand how he completes a story that starts in Genesis and moves all the way through the Old Testament. Alright, so thus far this semester, we've been looking at these minor prophets, right? little recap. The book of Amos, Jonah, Hosea, Micah, Nahum, and now Zephaniah. Guys, we're making such progress. Aren't you proud? We're driving into the dawn. Okay. So Zephaniah is who we're looking at, and he lived and wrote in the late 600s BC. Okay, That's roughly between 640 and 613 BC. Remember, we're trying to study these, in, these prophets in order, so Zephaniah is slightly after Nahum, in terms of order. In history, let me give you some historical context. King David lived around 1000 BC. Okay, the ancient Israel split into two over a near civil war: Northern Kingdom and Southern Kingdom, in 930 BC. Assyria, headquartered in Nineveh, went ahead and conquered the Northern Kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. Okay, All still before our prophet Zephaniah. Zephaniah was right before this last event. That is, all of a sudden, Josiah, the boy king, in 622 BC, okay, 100 years after the northern kingdom is destroyed by Nineveh. He discovers the book of the law, and there's a whole revival in the land of the southern kingdom. Imagine losing... all the Bibles in the entire country dedicated to God, the only country dedicated to God at the time imagine losing the books that the whole temple is built around what do you think is in the altar but the book of the law imagine going to the temple every day and not realizing what it's built around that's what happened for hundreds of years and he rediscovers it and so Zephaniah is writing this short book probably just before Josiah rediscovers the law and there's this huge giant awakening or revival and here's what the times are. The times are extremely bad. This is when Israel was. The people of God were worshiping anything and everyone that moved, except for God. Oh, it's a storm cloud. Oh, it's a pole in the ground. Oh, it's like a, a giant carved statue. And all of a sudden, like dogs in heat, they go and worship. Okay, that's sort of what's going on in the time period. Well, so what's this book about, if that's the historical context? Zephaniah's book is all about, um, well, let me go through the recap here. Amos' main theme was what? Injustice. We could probably do this by now, right? Jonah's main theme was what? Grace. Oh, you guys are so good. <laughs> um, Micah's main theme was the kingdom of God. Okay? And Hosea's main theme was redemption. I'm going out of order slightly. And Nahum's main theme was God as warrior king. Remember that last week? This week, we're going to look at Zephaniah's main theme, which is God's joy. God's joy. In other words, Zephaniah is asking, what makes God happy? What makes God happy? What does the Lord of the universe rejoice in? And his answer is really shocking given the historical surroundings. Given what's happening in Israel at the time. God delights in and rejoices over those who believe in Jesus. That's what God's joy is. That's where he's happy. He delights in and rejoices over those who believe in Jesus. So tonight we're going to look at a key passage in Zephaniah that describes God's joy in lavish detail. And what, outside of God himself, outside of the Godhead, God rejoices in. And that's frankly people who believe in Jesus. That's what makes God happy. So would you turn your Bibles? You got one? Blue or gray sheet, book of Zephaniah. We're gonna look at chapter 13. Oh, chapter three, Chapter 3. There's not 13 chapters in Zephaniah. Uh, 3, verses 14 through 20. Okay, so just if you want to if you're thumbing through your Bible. Okay, To find Zephaniah, look for Psalms, it's a pretty big book, and hit take a right. Okay, keep taking a right past, let's see, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and then Haggai. Okay, so Zephaniah is stuck between Haggai on the right and Habakkuk on the left. Okay, would you stand for the reading of scripture? Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those who mourn for the festival, so that you will no longer bear reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at that time I will gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Friends, these are the words of God, and they are more precious than gold even much fine gold, and they are sweeter than honey, even honey from the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for uh, the sweetness and the preciousness of it. We pray, Father, that it would penetrate our tired and bored hearts. I pray, Father, that you um, and your joy would captivate us. Um, that these words that may be familiar to some of you and some of us and may be familiar to others of us that are unfamiliar to others of us, I pray that you would use them and you'd massage them into our hearts. That you'd engrave them into our palms and on our foreheads. I pray, Father, that um, you would not let our heart tire, our hearts tire of the beautiful music that these words sing over us. I pray that we would see them as true and beautiful and good and that it would change the very way that we live. You would not let us, no matter where we are, not hear these words, not see your beauty, not change for the better. We ask these things through your Holy Spirit and in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I love hearing stories about what happens when normal, ordinary, everyday people meet celebrities. Do you know why? Because they are the best stories. Because they're extremely awkward. Always, every time someone meets a famous person, it's in this like ridiculous place. And they do and say the most absurd things that you could possibly think of. Well, I once met a celebrity... Not shocking. And you can guess it was painfully awkward. Such is my custom. You see, I met Brian McBride. I don't know if you guys know who that is. Brian McBride was uh, the lead goal scorer and captain for the U.S. national team and soccer, World Cup uh, MVP for the United States. Okay? I met him in the shower, (laughs) (laughs) naked in the shower. <laughs> Both of us were naked. <laughs> let me explain. <laughs> As some of you know, I played division 1 soccer in college, okay? Well, let me qualify that statement before you get the wrong idea. I rode the bench for a school that was 1700 people that happened to be division 1 in college. Okay? Anyway, through a series of connections and a series of, uh, and maybe because my goals against average was so good, 0.0 because I played 45 minutes the whole season. (laughs) Pretty stellar. Um, Maybe because of those things, I somehow had the opportunity to practice and scrimmage with a Major League Soccer team for a summer. So my freshman summer, my freshman of my college year, my summer, I spent with a Columbus crew playing Major League Soccer um, against some professionals. Anyway, uh, to be honest, it was an extremely humbling experience uh, to play with these folks. We would play these small-sided keep-away games, and I pretty much spent the entire time in the middle. <laughs> okay? And then, like, when I finally got into the goal, because I was a goalkeeper, um, when I finally got there, I, would, I would, couldn't even see the ball come off their foot. It was so hard and so fast when they shot the ball that I just looked behind me and it was in the net already. <laughs> Okay, so it was pretty humbling. Um, and then there was this incredible insecurity of the team locker room. First of all, I was borrowing equipment from them, like all my jerseys and all my shoes and all that sort of stuff. And then we had team showers. Team showers. Look, people, I don't know, girls have been spared this indignity, but whoever thought of, that a bunch of naked men should huddle around a few shower heads rubbing shoulders and everything else... <laughs> Whoever thought of that, that person was clearly only thinking about efficiency and not human dignity. (laughs) Okay? Anyway, after a particularly bad day of practice, I decided to wait out all the other players so I could have the shower to myself. And And I sneaked kind of stealthily into the shower and turned on the shower and started... To to scrub away all my failures and all of my insecurities. I'm gonna wash that practice right out of my hair. Okay? Anyway, um, there I was, um, showering up, lathering up, and all of a sudden I hear this shower head turn on behind me. And I turn in my nakedness, in my full backside and frontside glory, to see Brian McBride. My idol. I thought. I thought here I am, totally exposed. He just saw me play some of the worst soccer I've ever played in my life. He, I just showcased my subpar soccer skills in in front of perhaps America's best soccer player at the time. And to top it off, I'm butt naked. then it gets worse believe it or not Brian McBride turned to talk to me (laughs) couldn't we just ignore each other (laughs) like human beings (laughs) we were both literally naked literally physically washing our hair (laughs) and the US National World Cup captain and leading goal scorer Turns to me and starts asking me questions. <laughs> I learned two things in that shower that day. <laughs> two things. First, the best soccer players are the nicest soccer players. Because they have nothing. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Shut it to your. Brian McBride loved me <laughs> that shower. Um, look, the, peop, the reason that the best soccer players are the nicest soccer players is because they have nothing to prove. They have nothing to prove to you and to me, right? Brian McBride could not have been more chatty. He could not have been more interested in me. Second thing that I picked up from that experience, this team shower, <laughs> this team shower moment with a soccer superstar, showed me so much about myself. I was so freaking scared when Brian McBride turned his attention towards me because I thought when he really gets to know me, when he really gets to know who I am, he's just going to ignore me or dismiss me. There I was, physically, literally naked. He had just watched me fail at the one thing I thought I was really good at. Soccer, goalkeeping, the one thing I cared about and felt some worth in. And I couldn't imagine a higher, better person, this higher, better person would be present, would care about me. I couldn't even imagine that he would laugh with me and rejoice in me. Our passage tonight in Zephaniah is a lot like my experience in a locker room shower with Brian McBride. <laughs> Nah, what? Wait. <laughs> you see, when we meet celebrities, the reason we say and do ridiculous things, the reason it's so very awkward, is because the average person cares so very much about what that celebrity thinks of them. We're thinking so much about what the celebrity thinks of us, and most of us, when we look at a celebrity, judge ourselves as inadequate of their time. Most of us feel unable to meet their, ex- meet their attention. Let alone meet their expectations. Now imagine a person who's infinitely more worthy to be celebrated, a person who's infinitely higher and infinitely better than a celebrity. Imagine God. And many of us, most of the time, in the presence of that person of God, feel inadequate. Even more so, we feel unable to keep God's attention let alone God's expectations. But our passage tonight, Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 through 20, encourages us, serenades us with this truth. If we believe in Jesus, if we believe in Jesus, the infinite and eternal God of the universe not only cares about us, but rejoices over us. If we believe in Jesus, the infinite and eternal God of the universe rejoices over us. That is, if we trust that Jesus has made us adequate and is making us able, what, we are what makes God happy. Which is an unbelievable thought. If we trust that Jesus has made us adequate and is making us able, we are what makes God happy. Happy. And in the song that, that God sings through the lips of Zephaniah, there are three stanzas, three verses and choruses detailing his joy, note by note. First, in verses 15 through 16, God sings of his past rescue of his people through Jesus. Okay? So verses 15 through 16, God sings of his past rescue through Jesus. He has taken away our judgment. He has taken away our enemies. And he has taken away the fear alongside all of those things. Second, in verse 17, God sings of his present delight in his people, in Jesus. Okay, So he's singing about his present delight in us, in Jesus. Here it is. He, was, he is with us. He is for us. He is exalting over us. Third, in verses 18 through 20, God sings of the future elevation of his people for Jesus' sake. Okay, So God is singing of his future elevation for Jesus, of our future elevation for Jesus. He will gather us all together to change our shame into praise forever. So again, verses sixteen through seventeen, God rescued us through Jesus' life and death. Verse seventeen, God delights in us as we're united in Jesus by faith. Verses eighteen through twenty, God will elevate us for Jesus' sake. Okay? So let's begin with verses fifteen and sixteen, God's past rescue of us through Jesus. Look, it would be a lot more effective, but perhaps a little bit more boring, if I read all the way through Zephaniah before we got to this point. If I started with verse chapter 1, verse 1, and I read all the way through Zephaniah, all the way up until chapter 3, verse 8. If I had done that, verses 15 and 16 would make us come up short and gasp for air. You see, from, from the very beginning of Zephaniah all the way to this point... God has promised nothing but judgment and nothing but hostile enemy takeover of his people, Israel. And these verses intended to affect fear and trembling in his people. And this is really nothing new for any of us who have been studying the Minor Prophets. Hence why not many people preach on it this day and age. Just last week we talked about how God is a God of justice. He wants our wrongs righted. He wants the universe's harms healed. He's a God of justice. And we also want these things most of the time. We want the wrongs done to us righted. We want the harms done to us healed. Right? We want God's justice to rule, except when we've done wrongs. Except when we've desired harms. Then God's justice becomes an inconvenient truth. But look at verses 15 and 16 and what they're telling us. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you, he has cleared away your enemies. You shall never again have to fear evil. That is an outstanding promise. How is that even possible? How is it so certain that how is it so certain for Zephaniah that he uses the past tense about a future event? How can, he, how can a perfectly just God tell us that our judgments and our enemies are as good as God? The answer can only be found in one place. The cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ. Only there did Jesus, the great high priest, satisfy God's justice for those who believe. The judgments against us are now nailed to Jesus' death. Okay, Only at the cross did Jesus, the great king, conquer once and for all, all of our enemies. That is, Jesus' resurrection proves that death is dead. Jesus' resurrection proves that he has crushed the serpent, Satan's head. And the words of a hymn, it's so beautiful, O love of God, O sin of man, in this dread act your strength is tried, and victory remains with love. Jesus, our Lord, is crucified. Do you get that? The, sin, the love of God, the sin of man, in this great act your love is tried. Victory remains with love. Jesus, our Lord, is crucified. Let me give you some application. This crucifixion frees us finally and fully to be ourselves, if you believe it. We no longer need to engage in the theatrics of arranging our lives to hide our darkness and to display our greatness. We can tear off the public persona masks that we all wear. Why? Because the cross tells us the truth. In the words of another former professor of mine, Chuck Grote, the cross tells us this. God loves you. God welcomes you. And not only that, God loves you in all of your brokenness, in all of your shame, and in all of your fragmentation. We don't need to tidy ourselves up to receive God's welcome. It's the reverse. God's welcome tidies us up. God's welcome, the cross, cleans up our acts. We don't have to clean up our act to receive that welcome. God's cross, his welcome, changes our hearts for the better. Look, just think about verse 14. You cannot live verse 14. You cannot have that kind of joy and that kind of singing in your life. You cannot be singing in the shower all the time. The whole of your life to the glory of God, if you're living by fear and shame. You can't. I can't. We have to hear the gospel welcome of the cross to change. We will only want to sing aloud, we will only want to shout, we will only want to rejoice and exalt with all of our hearts if we trust that the God of the universe is already singing out loud, already shouting, already rejoicing and exalting over us. Look, God isn't some cosmic dentist. Okay, He's not like shaming you into flossing by showing you all of your cavities. All the different places that you're rotting away. I mean, I can't even count the number of times that I've been under that light in the dental chair, dreading that I have something like gingivitis, which I don't even know what it is. And thinking, man, I wish I flossed more. I'm going to floss from now on. And sure enough, like within the first two nights after I'm out of the dental chair, I've already forgotten to floss. Okay? Look, we can't keep promises based on fear and shame. We can't. I love the way that Pastor Joe Novenson puts up, picks up the logic of how we do verse 14 only because verses 15 and 16 are true. Okay? You obey best and feel safest. Sorry, you obey best when you feel safest. All obedience flows from a confidence of absolutely safe relationship. If you don't have a safe relationship with God, you only have leverage and threat, and you won't obey for long. In other words, we'll only truly and permanently love God and love others if we feel safe. If we feel cosmically loved and welcomed by a God who takes away our judgment and all the things that can possibly separate us from His love. But God's love and welcome is not just a past tense event, it's not just taking away the judgments and the enemies from us. God's loving welcome is fully present tense, and it also involves the Lord of everything that is singing. Over us, I know that most of your Bibles rightly translate God serenading his presence as a future tense thing, right? So he will rejoice, he will quiet, he will exalt over you. Do you know why that is? Because Zephaniah was writing 620 years plus from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It had to be a future event. Furthermore, the moment of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit was sent down to be in our midst, a mighty one who will save, that event didn't happen until 650 years plus after Zephaniah. So of course he's going to use the future tense about a present reality for us. Because what was well in advance, what was well in the future for Zephaniah, is right here, right now, for the people of God. listen again to what God says he's doing right here, right now the Lord God is in your midst, a mighty one who saves, he rejoices over you with gladness he quiets you by his love he exalts over you with loud singing that should be breathtaking let me just picture it for you Let me just picture it for you. The king of kings, the lord of lords, walks beside you quietly. The king of kings, the lords of lords, drapes us with his gladness like a warm blanket. God all-powerful, God all-knowing, God all-glorious, lifts us up on his shoulders and runs us off the playing field and triumph, even when we just failed that test. I had this pastor friend who read this verse in college, and he couldn't get over this image of God. He was one of those kids, right? He, first of all, he read it to everyone he knew, and then he memorized it and quoted it to everyone he knew. Every single person he knew, more than once. He just couldn't get over it. And there's a sense in which we should all be that way about this verse. It's frankly unbelievable. It's frankly unbelievable. And that's why we're sitting there so uncomfortable. Because it's so hard to take in. It's telling us that salvation is more than a narrow escape from judgment. Salvation is a red carpet VIP entrance into joy. Listen to the way that Charles Spurgeon, a theologian, puts it. He traces God's saving heart for us in a beautiful way. Believer, you are happy when God blesses you, but not as happy as God is. You were glad when you are pardoned, but he who pardoned you is more glad. The prodigal son who came back to his home was very happy, but not nearly as delighted as the father was to see him. The father's heart was more full of joy because his heart was larger than his son's. Do you believe that? God's heart is bigger than ours. And so therefore, his love for us and his delight in us is bigger than our delight. In ourselves, let alone in him. And because of this, we need to realize something that's gorgeous. Most of us turn from singing and rejoicing and return to that same secret soother. Things get stressful, life feels like it needs an escape hatch, and we go to sex, we go to alcohol, we go to overeating, we go into tearing apart our friends and our neighbors verbally, and gossip. Most of us return to this vomit. You know why? Because we think that's what we are. We think that we're vomit deep down inside. But if you believe in Jesus, if you believe that what this passage is saying is true, God is rejoicing over you all of the time. Every single moment, he is singing at the top of his lungs in heaven over us, even when we sin. Because Jesus paid for that too. And this further means that God's refrigerator in heaven The refrigerator that he has in heaven is covered, covered from the top of the ice maker all the way to the bottom of the vent that blows out the cold and warm air. All the refrigerator is covered, head to toe, in all of the half-hearted efforts you and I make to love well. The time I had lunch with someone who annoys me, that Facebook impulse that we had to invite that person who's not really our friend to a party, the way that you clean up your roommate's messes even when you and you and she or you and he don't really talk that much these moral stick figures these loving scribbles are proudly adorning god's heavenly fridge and god is showing off each and every one of these pictures to every single one of the saints and angels that will listen And more than a few times. If these pictures of God's rescue and God's delight are enough to touch our shame, God promises in verses 18 through 20 to elevate us to such an extent that he says, I will change your shame into praise and renown in all the earth. And God promises to do this for Jesus' sake because Jesus hung naked and he hung falsely accused on a cross. Covered in our shame. Caked in what makes us want to vomit. For Jesus' sake, God will touch all the parts of you and me that we feel like are lame. And he'll heal them. For Jesus' sake, God will take all the things we replay over and over in our minds when we leave a room full of people that make us believe that no one cares about us. God will take all of those things and he will draw them close to himself. And he will draw us close to himself in a holy hug. When Jesus comes again and he brings heaven to earth, he will finish what he started. He will finally and fully turn our numbing busyness into eternal fulfillment. He will finally and fully turn our self-righteous show into eternal integrity. He will finally and fully turn our self-gratifying freedom into eternal service. Do you know what was so amazing about that awkward naked moment in a shower with Brian McBride? It made all the difference for my summer. Made all the difference. Knowing that the best player on the team was for me made me play better. Brian McBride had broken his cheekbones in a header. And so he and I spent a lot of time together. He just took shot for shot and basically just destroyed me. But you know what? The time that he spent with me, the most important player on the team spent with me, made me play better. And you know what? Brian McBride not only talked to me at practice and scrimmages, he asked for me to play. He included me. And do you know what that did? The player most worthy of praise, pulling me in and rejoicing over me, made me play better. Look, I don't have to sit there and use the phrase, the game of life, for you to get the analogy here. (laughs) Right? We need to know why God is with us and why God is for us and why God is rejoicing over us is so very important. You see, Zephaniah gives us a glimpse of God's joy over us in Jesus. His rescue, his delight, his elevation of his people, of us who believe. And this picture is worth framing, this picture is worth treasuring in our hearts forever. Because God and all of his excellence and all of his importance and all of his worth is stooping low to make much of us. And this gospel image fuels us and provides us the power to love other people and to love God. Only when you and I realize that God is exalting over us with loud singing, uncomfortably loud singing. The kind of affection that makes us cringe when our mom covers us with kisses in the mall. He's doing that to us. Only when we realize that will we sing, will we shout, will we sing aloud, will we rejoice with all of our hearts. Do you want to know what makes people happy? Do you want to know what makes joy happen? Knowing that the God of the universe, the God of every single thing that was and is and is to come, rejoices, sings loud, exalts over those people in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, um, boy, boy, it's just hard to take that in. Um, Why does it feel like drinking out of a fire hydrant to know how much you love us? Why does it feel like we can't grasp the depth and the breadth and the width and the height of your love? I pray, Father, that you give us a snapshot Polaroid photo of this passage of God doing something for us. And I pray that you'd help us to shake it and stick it on our hearts. I pray that you'd help us to puff our chests out and lead into life with that. Father, we ask that you would change us through the way that you are changing us. We pray that we would love you and love others through the way that you're loving us. You're mighty to save forever and author of salvation. In your name we pray. Amen.